Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for our uh, Capitol Hill briefing titled uh, Recapturing Congress's War Powers, Repeal, Don't Replace the 2001 AUMF. My name is Jeff Vanderslice, and I am a Director of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, for those of you who are less familiar with our mission, the Cato Institute is a public policy research organization dedicated to the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. In pursuit of these values, Cato's scholars produce independent nonpartisan research and analysis on a wide range of policy topics. Today's topic, as you hopefully gathered from the title of the event, is on war powers. And we're here today not only because this is a perennial issue that's always worthy of reflection and debate, but also because of an increasing pressure on and apparent interest within Congress to re-examine what is now a nearly 17-year-old authorization for the use of military force. Joining us to discuss this important topic today are two of Cato's distinguished scholars, Gene Healy and John Glazer. Gene Healy is a vice president at the Cato Institute whose research uh, interests include executive power and the role of the presidency. Gene is the author of several books, including The Cult of the Presidency, America's Dangerous Devotion to Executive Power, and he has appeared on numerous television and radio programs, uh, including PBS's Noon News Hour with Jim Lehrer and NPR's Talk of the Nation, and his writings have appeared in the LA Times, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, and other publications throughout the country. Gene holds a bachelor's degree from Georgetown University and a JD from the University of Chicago. Gene Glazer is uh, the Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. His research interests include grand strategy, basing posture, US foreign policy in the Middle East, the rise of China, and the role of status and prestige motivations in international politics. John has appeared on numerous television and radio programs and has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, LA Times, Foreign Affairs, and the National Interest, among others. John earned a BA in political science from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and an MA in international security from the Schar School of Public Policy and Government at George Mason University. We'll begin now with their remarks. Uh, there will be plenty of time for questions uh, at the end, so please hold those until after the discussion has concluded. Uh, and with that, we'll turn things over to Gene. Thanks, Jeff. Thank, thank, all, thank you to all of you for being here. As Jeff noted, we're in the middle of a renewed debate here on the Hill about what role, if any, that Congress should play in the choice between war and peace. That's the most fundamental decision that any government can make, and it's one that our Constitution entrusts to Congress. But for nearly 17 years now, that choice has been left to the executive branch, with the result that the United States has been almost constantly at war. In President Obama's last year alone, the U.S. forces dropped over 26,000 bombs on seven different countries, and Obama left office as the first two-term president in American history to have been at war every single day of his presidency. And that's in large part thanks to a joint resolution that Congress passed three days after 
2001 authorization for the use of military force, or AUMF. Uh, three presidents in a row have warped that initially limited authorization into an enabling act for globe-spanning presidential war. Uh, it's, it's been made broad enough to cover everything from airstrikes in Waziristan to boots on the ground in Tongo, Tongo. And the Trump administration's position, like the Obama administration's before it, is that Congress has already had its debate on war powers uh, 17 years ago, and it's one Congress, one vote, one time. Last Sunday, uh, Memorial Day, the Washington Post ran a story profiling a soldier named Gabriel Khan. Uh, on April 30th, when he was killed in action in Afghanistan, he was 22. When Congress voted to go to war, he was in kindergarten. So it seems to me it's about time that we're having this debate. At least once in a generation, Congress should probably weigh in on the multiple wars that we're fighting. But this debate also presents a, a pretty substantial risk, the risk that Congress is going to pass a new AUMF that cedes even more power to the president laying the legal groundwork for another generation or more of presidential war. Uh, today, John and I are going to make the case that the best way to avoid that danger is to wipe the slate clean, uh, to repeal and not replace the 2001 AUMF. Recognize that the, the original authorization has run its course and sunset it, leaving adequate time, six to nine months, uh, to wrap up ongoing combat operations, and for the president to make the case for any new authorization that he thinks is needed. And if he does, he can make that case to Congress the way the Constitution envisions. Uh, our Constitution's framers believed that war was serious business and that going to war uh, should be somewhat difficult. It should involve uh, a broad national consensus, a consensus across both houses and in multiple branches. Uh, James Madison held it as an axiom that the executive is the department of power most distinguished by its propensity to war. Therefore, it's the practice of all states in proportion as they are free to disarm this propensity of its influence. Uh, the framers did that by granting the bulk of the Constitution's military powers to Congress, including control of the decision to go to war in the first place. And that didn't leave the president totally disarmed. The president retained in this scheme some defensive authority. The power to repel sudden attacks is the way that Madison's notes phrase it. But absent an imminent threat, absent provocation, the Constitution gave the president no power to launch sudden attacks. It will not be in the power of a single man to involve us in such distress. Pennsylvania's James Wilson uh, summed up in, eight, in 1787, because the important power of declaring war is vested in the legislature at large. The system will not hurry us into war, he said. It is calculated to guard against it. So that was the way it was supposed to work, and of course it, it didn't always work that way. Uh, well before 9-11, you can point to uh, multiple examples of presidents launching wars without congressional authorization. The invasion of Grenada under Ronald Reagan, <coughs> Panama under George H.W. Bush, uh, Kosovo under President Clinton, 
and so on. But the presidential wars of the late 20th century were, for the most part, exceptions to a general rule. They were geographically limited and temporary departures from a baseline of peace. Since the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, we've watched the emergence of a radically different regime, one in which going to war is easy, it's frequent, and it's rarely debated. This system will not hurry us into peace. In fact, it's, it's made war America's default setting. The use of lethal force is now so ubiquitous, so normalized, that in many ways we're hardly able to notice it anymore. Uh, just one example, in the, in the run-up to the 2016 election over Labor Day weekend, the Obama administration launched some 70 airstrikes across six countries, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia, and Libya. Now, 20 years ago, this would have been staggering. Uh, the, the nightly news broadcast uh, all would have led with this. Uh, in 2016, after uh, decades of permanent war, we barely looked up from the grill. So Senator Tim Kaine is right when he says that for too long, Congress has given presidents a blank check to wage war, and he's right, and he, he should be commended for wanting to change that. But if our experience with the 2001 AUMF has taught us anything, it's that presidents will push the authority that they're given as far as language will allow and probably beyond. Uh, the relevant clause of the 2001 AUMF is 60 words long. Uh, it targets the perpetrators of the September 11th attacks and those who harbored or aided them. It says nothing about associated forces. Uh, however, that concept, the concept of associated forces, has become a bottomless fount of presidential authority to wage war against groups that didn't exist on 9-11, that aren't associated with al-Qaeda, that may even, in the case of ISIS, for example, may even be at war with them, and that in many cases do not, any, do not present any serious or sustained threat to the United States home front. And most of the replacement AUMFs that are currently on the table in Congress, including the one that Senator Kane drafted with uh, Senator Bob Corker, grant far more authority than the original AUMF. And it's practically certain they will be stretched even further. Uh, the Corker-Kane AUMF starts by providing authorization for war against at least eight enemies in at least six countries. Under Section 3A, the President's authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS. Uh, he is also, per Section 5A, empowered to wage war against Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, uh, Al-Qaeda in Syria, including the Al-Nusra Front, the Haqqani Network, and Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Uh, but that is only the beginning. Uh, also under Section 5, the President can decide at any time to wage war on, against new enemies in new countries, and he's supposed to let us know within 48 hours of doing so, or at least he's supposed to let Congress know. The resolution uh, boasts about its transparency requirements, but it leaves open the possibility that the President can bury the announcement 
of new targets and new battlefields at a classified annex uh, unavailable to the general public. Uh, for my money, uh, the, the, one of the saddest sentences in the resolution comes, comes up front in the, its legislative statement of purpose. The purpose of this joint resolution, it says, is to reaffirm that Congress, the President, and the American people stand united in their resolve to defeat the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and designated associated forces, whoever they might be, whenever the President decides to designate them, and even if he won't strictly tell us who they are. We pledge our lives, fortunes, and sacred honor to total victory against the designated associated forces. Doesn't really have an inspiring ring. Of course, under Corker Kane, Congress re retains the right to object to mission creep, but unless Congress can muster a veto-proof majority to overturn the president's decision, he gets to expand the war at will. Also under Corker Kane, uh, the, the legislation doesn't sunset. Every four years, there's a, a congressional oversight uh, provision. But again, unless Congress can muster a veto-proof majority, the war authority will continue uh, and be perpetually renewed indefinitely. This is uh, not a way of reasserting Congress's constitutional powers. It's rather a method for institutionalizing the forever war. And it turns the Constitution upside down. This is not the way that constitutional democracies are supposed to go to war. Other members have introduced somewhat narrower AUMFs. On the House side, a bipartisan group led by uh, Congressman Mike Kaufman has drafted an alternative that features a five-year sunset. Uh, the, the authority will actually expire unless it's affirmatively renewed. Uh, Congressman Adam Schiff's AUMF uh, has a three-year sunset. But both of these uh, include broad, fairly broad associated forces provisions that allow the president to expand the target list and which institutionalize mission creep. The AUMF introduced by Senator Jeff Merkley avoids most of these pitfalls. It is about as tightly and smartly crafted as a war authorization can be. It's limited to two countries, Iraq and Afghanistan, and three groups. Uh, the countries and targets must be published, cannot be classified, and it turns things right side up. Uh, for the most part, the president uh, is required to come to Congress to add new countries and new groups. Even so, even the Merkley resolution bypasses the debate that we ought to be having about even the core groups that are included in each alternative AUMF, that is, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and ISIS. We ought to be debating what continuing war authorities are necessary for those groups. Uh, instead, John and I argue uh, for a war powers reset, re restoring sunsetting the AUMF, keeping it separate from a debate about new war authorizations, and restoring America's default setting to peace, not war. The president decides that uh, al-Shabaab or Boko Haram, uh, for example, represent serious long-term threats to our national security, he'll be free to make that case to the people's representatives and secure 
new authorization for war in the way that the Constitution envisioned. Uh, we're told in this debate, uh, for example, in the, uh, in the Corker-Cain resolution that uh, numerous non-state terrorist groups now pose a grave threat to the United States. But when the framers crafted the uh, Constitution with, it, with its initial allocation of war powers, they lived in a pretty bad neighborhood. Uh, the United States was a small frontier republic on the edge of a continent, occupied by periodically hostile great powers and Indian marauders. Uh, it, it, you know, there, there were grave threats, there were, there were dangers, and nonetheless, uh, our first president, George Washington, wasn't even sure that he had the authority to take offensive action against Indian tribes uh, hostile Indian tribes without affirmative authorization from Congress. When the framers made these decisions to <laughs> limit the amount of uh, war power that one person could exercise, uh, I think you could argue that the threats were somewhat greater than they are today. Uh, one thing that, and that's, a, that's something uh, that John is going to, uh, to talk about, uh, can can the threats that, that, that they've identified, the threats that we face today, are they vast enough and grave enough to justify the uh, upending and overturning of the original constitutional scheme for, uh, for <coughs> congressional war powers? And making that case, the case that, that the threats today are that grave, I think is, is extremely difficult, but he'll have more to say about that. Thank you, Gene. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you all for coming. I'm pleased to see such a good showing for uh, this issue. Um, so as Gene said, while he focused on a lot of the legal and constitutional and some of the political problems with the two existing AUMFs and why uh, those problems risk being either papered over or even exacerbated by repealing it and replacing it with a new uh, one that uh, fails to impose serious constraints on executive war powers. Um, I'm going to focus on the other side of the coin, uh, the kind of foreign policy, strategic, and national security implications of this issue. Um, but I do want to start, I'm going to talk about, uh, you know, the effectiveness and utility of U.S. military force in the face of these terrorist threats and whether or not uh, they pose a grave enough threat to justify a kind of permanent war footing. But I do want to start by building off some of what Gene uh, mentioned briefly throughout his remarks. And, and uh, I, you know, I want to take stock of the scope and the costs and the effectiveness of U.S. military action taken abroad uh, under the two post-9-11 AUMFs. And I think it's important to dwell on those costs because the damage of unchecked executive war powers is not limited to the erosion of constitutional principles or the rule of law. Uh, there are real strategic, financial, and human costs involved as well. So uh, currently U.S. troops are fighting terrorists and various non-state militants uh, in, in 14 different countries. Uh, we've bombed Syria, for example, uh, 13,000 times in the past couple of years. Last year alone, Trump bombed Yemen more than 130 times, targeting al-Qaeda and ISIS militants. 
That's up from 38 times in 2016. If you remember back to the uh, first couple of weeks after the inauguration, Trump authorized a special forces raid in Yemen that was botched. It got a Navy SEAL killed, uh, up to 30 civilians killed, 14 alleged militants killed, um, an action that was justified legally under the AUMF. Trump claimed it was a huge success, that it yielded major intelligence value, um, but it was widely viewed as a spectacular failure. And it's notable that even high-profile high fumbles like this, um, you barely hear a peep about what legal authority the president has to engage in these kinds of operations uh, without explicit congressional authority, without a public debate. As Gene uh, pointedly put it, we barely looked up from our grills. Um, Trump has bombed Somalia more than 40 times. As of March, Trump had bombed Libya eight times, uh, at least that we know of. The Pentagon initially only reported four of those. Uh, since 2014, the Pentagon says anti-ISIS operations have cost more than $14 billion. It's likely an undercount. Uh, partly because of President Trump's loosening of the rules of engagement, last year was the deadliest year for civilian casualties since the start of the anti-ISIS campaign, with more than 6,000 people killed uh, in strikes conducted by the U.S.-led coalition in Iraq and Syria. That's an increase of more than 200% over the previous year. Um, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, the two main theaters of the two main AUMFs at issue, have come with a price tag of roughly $5 trillion. It's an unfathomable amount of money. Uh, conservative estimates for the number of Iraqis killed in the U.S. war uh, exceed 200,000, not to mention the millions of refugees and internally displaced uh, people that it generated. It also destabilized the entire region, bolstered Iranian power, uh, generated higher rates of uh, extremist Islam Islamic terrorism, undermined U.S. national security in a number of ways. The war in Afghanistan continues to be an abysmal failure. Back in March, um, U.S. Army General John Nicholson said Trump's new strategy, quote, new strategy, which includes increased airstrikes and a, and a marginal increase in troop presence, in other words, not a new strategy at all, uh, is improving the situation in Afghanistan. You know, sort of like when his predecessor, uh, John Campbell, General John Campbell, said that he too had, quote, seen the change in improved results. General Joseph Dunford, back in 2013, uh, talked about, quote, the inevitability of our success. His predecessor, General John Allen, declared we are winning. Uh, General David Petraeus, David Petraeus in 2011, we have reversed the momentum of the Taliban. Stanley McChrystal, 2010, Success is still achievable. General David McKiernan, 2009, uh, the United States is not losing in Afghanistan. This routine goes all the way back to 2001. The reality is that since uh, the beginning of the Obama administration up to now, uh, the war in Afghanistan has claimed the lives of almost 30,000 civilians, uh, injured more than 50,000 civilians. Um, the Taliban currently controls or contests about 45% of Afghanistan's districts. They hold more territory today than at any point since 2001. Uh, despite 16 years of nation building and throwing resources at the problem, Afghanistan's government remains more corrupt than 96% of all countries. Number of bombs dropped by the Western coalition in Afghanistan uh, in early 2018 was the highest that it has been since 2013. 
Suicide attacks went up 50%, insurgent attacks overall tripled in 2017. In short, the two existing AUMFs have afforded such wide latitude for war, <coughs> so little check on specified targets, geography, and time, that these ventures can impose enormous costs, wide-ranging consequences, without triggering much pushback from Congress. Now, all of this effort, manpower, allocation of resources, all of these hugely consequential and often de devastating policies are justified as measures to mitigate the terrorist threat. And given all the terrible costs and negative consequences, the most relevant question is, uh, aside from the legal and constitutional questions, have these policies been successful in mitigating the terrorist threat? Have they achieved that objective in some way? Now, the first problem with answering that question, of course, is that there isn't much of a threat to begin with, but I'll get into that in a bit. Can these policies that these three presidents in a row have been empowered to carry out, thanks to the AUMF, <clears throat> be said to have successfully mitigated the terrorist threat? I think it's really hard to answer that question in the affirmative. In some cases, there were some short-term benefits. The drone war in Pakistan had an impact on decimating al-Qaeda's ranks and, you know, the initial stage of the Afghan war. Uh, uh, militants scattered and that hindered their capabilities. But over the long term, uh, it turns out military force is not all that effective a tool in mitigating the terrorism threat. And in fact, there's compelling evidence that our actions have exacerbated the problem. The U.S.-NATO air war against Muammar Gaddafi's Libya, for example, which I should say is the only major military uh, use of force since 9-11 not covered under the AUMF, and actually was a war the Obama administration said they don't need congressional authorization for anyways. But nevertheless, it's an example of how military force can create new terrorist threats that didn't previously exist. Libya hardly came up on the radar as a theater in the global war on terror, uh, before the U.S. and its European allies overthrew Gaddafi. Uh, but in the chaotic aftermath and the chronically weak regime that replaced it, Libya has been, um, you know, terrorism spiked in Libya. ISIS gained a foothold there. Uh, it's since been on the receiving end of uh, U.S. military action with, I think, dubious legal authority under the AUMF. ISIS, to take an even more egregious example, it's still the group that engenders the most fear and the, and the biggest headlines. ISIS grew out of the Sunni insurgency that rose to fight U.S. forces in Iraq. As David Kilcullen, who was senior advisor to General Petraeus at the height of the Iraq surge, put it, quote, there would be no ISIS if we had not invaded Iraq. As early as 2006, the U.S. National, Intelligent, uh, the US National Intelligence Estimate on Trends in Global Terrorism found that the Iraq war was, quote, shaping a new generation of terrorist leaders and operatives. The war had become a cause celebre for jihadists, breeding a deep resentment of U.S. involvement in the Muslim world and cultivating supporters for the global jihadist movement. That's true more generally, and the hard numbers bear it out. In 2015, uh, the number of fatalities by 2015, the number of fatalities from terrorism in the Middle East had increased by a staggering 397 percent since 2001. And in the seven countries that the United States uh, either bombed or invaded uh, since 9-11, uh, terrorist attacks, the number of individual terrorist attacks rose by an astonishing 1,900%. And the data don't show any such spike in the comparable countries that the United States did not intervene in. So 
a spike in terrorism follows U.S. military intervention in these countries. If anything, open-ended authorization for the use of military force in the Middle East has made us less safe and not more. Now, I fully understand the impulse to ask in response to this, well, what are you suggesting we do nothing? And I think there are several responses to that. First of all, there is a sizable academic literature on how terrorist groups end or fade away, or at least how they have in the past. And they don't tend to emphasize military force, but rather things like political integration and eventual moderation, prolonged marginalization within stable security environments, and, and so on. This kind of draws up, uh, dries up uh, recruitment and opportunities for violence go away. Uh, and we just need to be realistic about the limits of what US military force can achieve in terms of setting up those conditions. Secondly, there's plenty we can do in the realm of intelligence and law enforcement to tackle existing terrorism threats, but we do need to now scrutinize how much of a threat terrorism actually is. And the facts, I think, present a much more sanguine picture than the political rhetoric and the hysterical media coverage of terrorism that we hear about. Uh, it's, it's not the existential menace that we're told, it's really a pretty minor and manageable threat. So first of all, your chances of being killed in a terrorist attack here on U.S. soil are infinitesimally small. Since September 11th, the chances are about one in 40 million. You're more likely to be struck by lightning. Um, if you average it out in the years since 9-11, the average number of Americans killed in the United States by Islamist terrorism is about six per year. And if you extract Omar Mateen, the uh, ISIS-inspired individual who shot up the uh, Pulse nightclub, in Florida, if you take him out of the equation, that number would have halved, so only three per year, but so many people died in that, uh, that it shot up to six per year on average. Compare that, say, with the 63,632 people uh, in America that died by taking drugs in 2016, or the fact that non-terrorist homicides have killed roughly 20,000 Americans in the past 30 years, and just think of the incredible disproportionate resources devoted to the comparatively tiny threat of terrorism. In fact, try to look up any reputable source that lists uh, leading causes of death in the United States. Any government source, NGO, uh, health organization, uh, you'll find terrorism conspicuously absent. Top 10, top 25, top 100. 9-11 was a traumatic event and it led us to misinterpret the nature of the threat from Al-Qaeda and related groups. It was an extreme outlier in the history of terrorist attacks, not a harbinger of things to come, not an indication of a new era of global threat, etc. And I think the record in the years since speaks for itself. If you catalog all of the attempted terrorist attacks in the United States since 9-11, from the shoe bomber to the underwear bomber to the Lackawanna 6 to the Times Square bomber to Fort Hood to Boston Marathon, they all essentially fall into one of three categories. The first category is that the attacker had some operational connection to foreign terrorist groups and through their own incompetence typically failed to successfully carry out the attack. Think here of the genius mastermind who lit his underwear on fire on a commercial flight. Uh, the second category is that the attacker had precisely zero operational connection to overseas terrorist groups and they committed or attempted to commit some awful attack that they um, uh, on their own, these are called ISIS-inspired or Al-Qaeda-inspired or lone wolf attacks, 
Um, and then the third category is that the attacker was either induced or in some cases entrapped by uh, uh, undercover informants to conduct a phony plot cooked up by U.S. law enforcement. Um, and the details of those cases, you should, uh, I recommend the award-winning book, uh, Terror, Factor, Terror Factory by Trevor Aronson or John Mueller's Chasing Ghosts. It's almost comical uh, what, you know, the level of stupidity and ineptitude that these uh, would-be attackers have. Um, uh, and a lot of experts believe they never would have had the ability or poten potentially even the uh, initiative to conduct the attacks without uh, the, the uh, fabricated sting operation. ISIS has never once conducted, conducted a successful terrorist attack here on U.S. soil. There's only such a thing as ISIS-inspired attacks. And guess what? A blank check for war in far-off Muslim countries does literally nothing to stop these. In 2016, as I mentioned, Omar Mateen killed uh, almost 50 people in the Pulse nightclub. Ask yourself how U.S. troops in Afghanistan, airstrikes in Iraq, drone bombings in Yemen, uh, airstrikes in uh, Somalia, you know, special forces raids and so on, how could they possibly have foiled that attack or ones like it? Uh, or had any effect, any impact whatsoever. You might as well argue that U.S. military action justified under the AUMF could have, you know, prevented uh, Sandy Hook. They're just unconnected. To the extent that they are connected, Omar Mateen, for what it's worth, said that the triggering event for him was uh, the bombing of an ISIS leader, uh, but that he probably would have done it anyways. He was a disturbed individual. Um, but there's this dramatic disconnect between the fear felt here at home uh, about the threat of terror and the actual utility that specific U.S. military operations have in preventing attacks here. The Taliban is another group specifically mentioned in the new draft AUMFs, but it's not clear why. They're a domestically focused group. They've never engaged in international terrorism. Uh, in fact, they're only a threat to Americans to the extent that we insist on living amongst them uh, in Afghanistan. Um, the most, one of the most isolated and strategically insignificant plots of territory in the world. And to be fair, no one actually claims the Taliban is going to come here and attack us or our allies. Um, the, the claim is that in the absence of an AUMF authorizing U.S. military action against them, uh, they'll, they'll continue to rule Afghanistan and um, uh, be a safe haven where groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS can plot transnational attacks. Scholars refer to this to the safe haven myth. It's simply not true that Afghanistan would have operational utility for these groups to hatch terrorist attacks against us. And it's kind of a myth that al-Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan in the lead up to 9-11 uh, was useful in the success of those attacks. The attacks were planned in Afghanistan, but also in Hamburg, Germany, uh, Florida, Malaysia, Boston. In this day and age of instant borderless communications, territorial safe havens uh, just aren't that operationally useful. And actually, they can be a, a liability. One of the unique things about ISIS is that it insists on obtaining territory, uh, which is strategically stupid, because now we have a target. Uh, the, the, the benefit, the, the, the strategic asset of groups like al-Qaeda is that you don't know where they are. Um, so just to wrap up, the national security rationale, I think, for a presidential blank check for global war on terror is extremely weak. Contrary to the hysteria that surrounds terrorism, it's a minor and manageable threat, not a war to be won. Uh, 
the bulk of our post 9-11 military actions have exacerbated this already limited threat rather than mitigated it. And if Congress were to take the advice of Gene and I that uh, the right course is to repeal and not replace the AUMFs um, with a newer and fresher authorization for continued war, I don't think this should be confused with tying the hands of the president. As Gene said, whoever holds that office has inherent powers to repel sudden attacks or seek new specific authorizations to defend against new threats on a case-by-case -case basis. Thanks very much. Thank you both for your fantastic presentations. We'll go ahead and open the floor up to questions now. Um, uh, for those of you who do have questions, we do have a microphone around here somewhere, so please wait for that to arrive. Uh, and please state your name and affiliation. And if you would, please state your question in the form of a question uh, as opposed to a statement. First. I thank you so much for coming today. I just have a question um, regarding the associated forces in some of the different proposed AUMFs and the post 9-11 one. Uh, associated forces were a part of that one. I'm just kind of wondering to what extent there is different. There is a difference in how they are defined into the scope of that in the one that uh, Senator Corker introduced or if associated forces is a part of um, Senator Merkley's or uh, Representative Schiff. Um, I just, I haven't looked into Representative Schiff's or Senator Merkley's as, as much as I have the Senator Corker one. So the question is about uh, associated forces, how they're defined in, in, in the various ones. In the various are, ones and how there's a, what differences there are between the post 9-11 in regards specifically to AUMFs and the one proposed by Senator Corker. Well, the phrase associated forces uh, appears nowhere in the 2001 AUMF. Uh, it was uh, uh, sort of an extrapolation from the uh, language about uh, harboring or aiding the perpetrators of 9-11, uh, which you can argue there was some extra authority in there uh, to, to sweep up new groups, but what's happened in the decade and a half since is it's uh, it's it's been daisy chained out to include uh, groups that are not strictly associated with uh, uh, with the original targets of the resolution, including uh, ISIS, a group that was excommunicated by Al Qaeda and uh, it was actively at war uh, with them. So uh, I, I think the. The history of the 2001 AUMF with regard to associated forces says that when you're starting with, with basically nothing and, it, and it's been uh, allowed to expand in, in that dramatic a fashion that uh, you have to be very careful about uh, what associated forces provisions you specifically write into an AUMF. Off the top of my head for my recollection, uh, in the the tightest definition of associated forces, and I don't want to rifle through too many papers here, is in the Merkley AUMF. Uh, it it, uh, it it they have to be co-belligerents with the uh, the three groups that are identified in that AUMF: uh, Taliban, ISIS, and uh, and Al Qaeda. And uh, he also includes a provision. 
and it'd be interesting to see what effect this would have. But uh, when there is a, an associated force, the, the president, the, you know, the, the authority can expire without Congress doing anything. Uh, the, there has to be continuing repeated certification that the group has the ability to attack the United, a demonstrated incredible ability to attack the the United States homeland. Uh, so Senator Merkley's would be the uh, the 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 narrowest uh, grant of that authority, and uh, Senator Corker and Keynes uh, the uh, broadest. Uh, it includes, if I recall correctly. Uh, you know, that they're engaged in, it, it expands the definition, include people that are I- engaged in uh, hostilities with our coalition partners uh, instead of just the United States, the United States Armed Forces. And uh, it has very little uh, bite in terms of uh, restraining the president's ability to uh, to add friends of friends of friends of friends uh, in the way that the 2000 and one AUMF has led to such extensive mission creep. Back in the room. Just, just wait for the uh, microphone, if you don't mind, so the cameras can uh, hear you. Uh, thank you for speaking with us today. Um, I'm curious as to what implications would arise from um, Congress regaining control over its wartime powers, given that over the years. And in the future, it's likely to be more and more polarized. Well, polarization makes it hard to get things done for good and for bad. Uh, when it comes to, to war, uh, arguably the thumb, on the, the thumb on the scale should be against uh, precipitous action. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure that the... Uh, and one of the, one of the, the the things that does seem to be the most bipartisan, the biggest bipartisan consensus in Washington, is for uh, you know continued is oftentimes for continued war authority. So uh, I'm not sure that the drift towards more ideological polarization among the parties in recent decades. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure it makes a great deal of difference. I, I think in these things, the the problem has always been. Uh, and increasingly, uh, it's a it's a bigger and bigger problem. Uh, getting Congress to accept the responsibility that the Constitution clearly gives it. Madison had this idea that uh, they'd set up sort of a self uh, perpetuating machine where uh, the the interests ambition would counter uh, ambition. The interests of the the individual. Actors within a branch would would lead them to defend uh, their respective branches' turf and authority. And what we've seen uh, in recent decades is uh, that works fairly well for the the, the presidency. Anybody who uh, uh, occupies the presidency uh, always ends up trying to. Uh, to do what Dick Cheney said that, that was his goal was to leave the presidency stronger than than they found it, but it's very difficult to get Congress to get individual congressmen and women to buckle down and care about uh, this core constitutional responsibility. Uh, 
It, there's a lot of them. They don't have the individual incentive. It's sort of a shell game for the American voter, uh, you know, trying to pin down uh, who's exactly responsible for the lead for 17 years of war. So uh, the polarization doesn't worry me. What worries me is the institutional incentives that make it difficult for the system to, for Congress to take responsibility and for the system to function as it was intended. Just to second that point that polarization can at times be helpful for constraining uh, war powers, if you think back to 2013 uh, when the Obama administration was uh, approaching the decision to formally ask Congress for authorization to bomb Syria for no good reason, um, you know, there's a lot of things that caused opposition. There was lots of public uh, opposition and lots of people calling into uh, their uh, elected representatives and so forth, but the Republicans definitely like to oppose whatever Obama supported, and it might have stopped a very stupid uh, uh, initiation of force. And if you contrast that with uh, what's happening recently with uh, April 2017 and April 2018 when Trump engaged in these symbolic military attacks on the Syrian regime, uh, for no strategic or tactical or national security reason whatsoever. Uh, he did so without even feigning to, you know, uh, Congress, uh, congressional authority, and he took it upon himself. And that's a situation in which everyone in Congress can just say thumbs up or quietly abide because they're not being asked to take responsibility for it. When you put responsibility back in Congress's hands, whether there's polarization or not, they tend to take these questions more seriously as opposed to just evade responsibility and uh, give it to the president. Additional questions? Yes. Uh, my name is Max. I'm from Congressman Mark Sanford's office. Um, so thanks for putting this all together. Uh, my question is uh, regarding much of the war on terror is fought online. So, you know, against, you know, various jihadists uh, recruiting radicals and stuff like that. So does the AUMF uh, like include war efforts on, the US, on part of the United States government in fighting this? And should it? And I guess, should we, uh, should, should, should we be concerned about the rights of foreign nationals and then American <coughs> citizens being caught up into the dragnet of the American surveillance state um, in regards to the AUMF? I kind of wish more of our wars were fought online. <laughs> uh, now, uh, with regard to cyber warfare, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting and uh, tangled question. I mean, the AUMF talks about all necessary and appropriate force. Uh, so, you know, I suppose if there were any reason for, to uh, wage you know, uh, cyber, like a Stuxnet type of cyber warfare against a, a non-state terrorist actor, you can make a case that uh, that falls under the rubric of necessary and appropriate force. For law enforcement and intelligence operations against uh, 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 lone wolves or uh, uh, transnational terrorist-affiliated individuals, um, you know, you're not really in the realm of the AUMF, other than I think it does uh, uh, speak to be careful what you authorize, because the among the things that the, the 2001 
AUMF has been cited for that uh, Congress arguably never contemplated was uh, it was uh, invoked a number of times in the Bush administration for uh, the so-called terrorist surveillance program. Uh, and uh, it, it had been invoked for the detention of a U.S. citizen, Jose Padilla, uh, captured on on U.S. soil, so these things do have a tendency to uh, be interpreted far uh, more broadly than the initial authorization than anyone contemplated the, the initial authorization. You know, if you go back and look at what uh, people in Congress were saying at the time and what little debate we had before we passed the 2001 AUMF, uh, you don't get the sense that anyone contemplated that they were uh, committing the U United States to open-ended multi-generational warfare. Uh, you had Joe Biden, who was in the Senate at the time, saying, this is nothing like the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. We don't, we're not saying go, go pell-mell, go do anything anywhere. This is much more limited. Well, now it's uh, you know, been in existence close to twice as long as the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, uh, mm -hmm. and it's hard to to tell the difference between uh, just an open-ended wholesale delegation of Congress's war authority. So I think uh, that's something we have to pay attention to even when it comes to, uh, to areas like surveillance. That said, by and large, I think what you're gonna find is uh, that the issues are treated differently. Uh, authorization for the use of military force, I think is more traditionally defined as uh, bombs and bullets and not quite cyber. Uh, there is cyber warfare, but most of, I think, the uh, use of the internet in you know, protecting the country from potential attackers is, I mean, there's a confluence of uh, bureaucracies from the FBI to the NSA to the CIA that operate in that realm. And in many cases with regard to US uh, persons, they'll need uh, a warrant and they'll have to go through the process. And with overseas people, I mean, there's, there, the gloves are off in any case with regard to the intelligence community uh, in the realm of the internet. So I think what you'll find is these things are, are, are separate. Additional questions? There's one in the back. Hey guys, my name's Jesse. Um, in Eisenhower's farewell address, um, he warns against uh, the, the military-industrial complex. Um, what role, if any, do you think there's pressure being put on by, you know, let me tread very lightly on this, but big defense contractors um, who are located in districts of very uh, posh, influential um, members of Congress on A committees that have crazy amounts of influence, and the military, just like, for example, we see the tapes of Lyndon B. Johnson and his military advisor, advisors telling him pretty much lies to try to keep him in Vietnam. What role, if any, do you think the military industrial complex has in, um, in keeping the AUMF and keeping the status quo? So in my opinion, it's much more cumulative, the effect of the military industrial complex. It's uh, less specific to an AUMF or the specific uh, role of the military in the war on terror. Uh, but you're perfectly right to point out, I mean, it's always amazed me that, you know, uh, members of Congress who in public kind of are very practiced in uh, praising the military, putting high military officials on a pedestal, 
and then, you know, the generals will get in front of a, a committee and testify and say, you know, we don't really need money for this weapon system. It's not relevant to the way we fight. And uh, members of Congress, again, who are typically submissive to these people say, well, screw, because it's helpful to me and uh, my district and my campaign money. Uh, and so that's certainly a factor in less the AUMF debate and more a, uh, the broad scope of the fact that we have a massive uh, military effort in the world. We have 800 military bases in 70 or 80 countries around the world. Um, we've engaged in more individual military uh, interventions in the past 30 years than we had in the previous 190 years of our existence. And that does relate to the growth of the uh, military-industrial complex. But there are other factors as well. I mean, it's in the bureaucratic interests of m much of the U.S. government in the national security realm to inflate threats and pretend like we have uh, uh, existential threats hiding behind every corner uh, because no one wants to go to their superior at the end of the budget year and say, you know, actually, I think I'm chasing ghosts here. Why don't you fire half my staff and demote me? And, you know, there are bureaucratic and budgetary interests that keep this expansive national security state that we have and uh, prevent a narrowing of the definition of U.S. national interests. I think we have time for one more question. If there is one. Kurt's got one over there. Kurt. Front row. Nope. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's me, yeah. Uh, Kurt Couchman with Defense Priorities. So I want to ask a, about something a little beyond the authorization for the use of military force and ask about authorizations for the use of military cooperation. In um, Chapter 16 of Title 10, for example, or the Foreign Assistance, uh, Foreign Assistance Act, yes, um, there's all sorts of authorities to help friendly countries or really anyone who might be helping us with counterterrorism. Do you see those kinds of authorities as um, being appropriate under the constitutional balance of powers? And what would you characterize the policy implications as being? I think by and large, the United States has to rethink its approach to alliances. You know, it used to be the case that you made alliances to help you fight wars or protect against uh, wars that could be around the corner. And now we just have alliances for their own sake. And uh, they're supposed to cover uh, lots of things, not just national security questions. Uh, they're supposed to cover democracy promotion. They're supposed to cover uh, intelligence sharing. They're supposed to cover economic cooperation. Uh, I think we need to rethink how uh, permanently we cooperate on a military and national security level with allies. Not to say that we shouldn't cooperate, but uh, constant military cooperation and sharing to chase threats that I think are either insignificant or imaginary uh, is uh, not helpful and I think contributes to the uh, ballooning effect of our national security state. Okay, and that concludes today's event. Thank you all for coming and let's give our speakers a round of applause.